0: Tonight's probably going to be some of the most extreme pessimism and the most extreme optimism. Because the Bible is the most pessimistic book as well as the most optimistic book that you'll ever read. It's just off the charts when it comes to that. So as we dig back in this fourth message of holiness, let's reread the same passage that we've looked at. And tonight, um, for those of you that are guests with us, normally we use the NLT, but uh, we're using a little journaling Bible that a number of folks have have purchased, and that's the ESV, so I'm going to read from the English Standard Version tonight. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ, or your final salvation. Remember, you're being saved from you've been saved from sin. You're being, you've been saved from your past sins. you're being saved from sin tonight. You're being saved from all sin in the future. So that's what we talk mean about the past, present and future tense of salvation. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he's called you as holy, you must also be holy in all your conduct, since it is written, "You shall be holy, for I am holy." And if you call on Him as Father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves without fear through the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. It was foreknown before the foundation of the world, But was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you who, through him, are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. Father, tonight, as we look at this matter of our will and holiness, as we've looked at heart and mind, and tonight I just ask you to help us to reflect upon what we've already learned. And help us to wrap this section up in such a way that, God, every one of us will constantly, from this pulpit, Lord, to everyone sitting and listen tonight, listening tonight, we will see our great need for holiness, for it's in the name of Jesus Christ, I pray. And everyone said, amen. God bless you. You can be seated. When I traveled, and at times I would be asked to speak upon the subject of holiness and what was a holy life? I would often start by saying, you know, if you weren't aware of what I was thinking of what I was going to be speaking on tonight, and you found out that I'm going to be speaking about holiness, you might be just thinking like this. Great. That's the last thing I want to hear about is holiness. As a matter of fact, It was people like you, I would say. I'd point to myself. You'd say it was people like you I've tried to get away from all my life who think they're holier than thou, who think they're better than other people. So thanks a lot. I'm glad I came to church. And people would laugh and chuckle, but most of us in here, because you're nodding your heads tonight, you know exactly what I'm talking about. But it's because of a misunderstanding of holiness, and it's because of not really capturing and grasping what this great, great gift of God that he gives to us called holiness, because God describes himself as a holy God who dwells in unapproachable light. And the reason people think that way is simply not only because they don't understand holiness, and it's not that they don't know what holiness is— but it's because they've never seen themselves in reality for who they truly are. If I fail, if Dennis Clanton fails to understand holiness, I've never really looked myself face to face in the mirror. I've never sat down and looked at my heart and my life in a way that I truly should and faced what my life was all about. I was a boy when the trial of of Adolf Achman took place. I have stayed for a week in the home of someone who was personal friends with Eichmann. As a matter of fact, not only personal friends, knew them well, carried me through mementos and their journals and things of that nature that they had when I was working and ministering in Argentina. I can barely remember because I was six years old when the trial of Eichmann was taking place, but I can remember those images that my mother and father watched black and white television. Eichmann in the glass booth. Do any of you remember what I'm talking about? And there was a particular man that later in years in the 90s that Mike Wallace interviewed before he passed away, and his name was Yahil Danure. DeNure, and I read about him in Gene Getz's book, The Measure of a Man, and some of you have been have, the church, you've been through that book with me before, The Measure of a Man. Dunor was someone that I got fascinated with because Dunor had been in a concentration camp. He had known who Eichmann was, and when they brought him in to testify, he saw Eichmann sitting in that glass booth, and he he fell down and began weeping and and sobbing uncontrollably. Gets takes his testimony. And he says this, and I want you to get it really carefully, because Wallace drilled him with several questions. He says, what went through your mind when you saw Eichmann there? Did did you go through your mind that this man was, that somehow or another, this was the man who had murdered your family? This was the man who had imprisoned you? Were you terrified when you saw him again? Did it bring back what we would call PTSD episodes? He says, What went through your mind? And Wallace, in that way that he had that was just, you know, he could ask questions that would lead you on and on down the rabbit hole. Danur looked at him, and he says, no, it was none of those things. He said, when I looked at him, I saw myself. And he said, I realized that he was not a god, and he was not a demon. He was a man just like me. And because he was a man just like me, I was capable of the same kind of evil. When I read those words and Getz's book and went back and watched some of those YouTube videos of Eichmann and and Denour and the translation of that, it brought back what I've shared several times over the years that I've served as your pastor, what one of my professors said in Bible college. And he said, don't ever think for one moment that you're not capable of the same kind of evil that Hitler was capable of. Don't ever think for one moment that you're not capable of the same kind of evil that Nero was capable of. He said, for the moment you begin to see yourself and think, I would never do that, you have lost sight of what it means to have been lost in your sin. And that statement, when I saw him, I saw myself. Friends, it once again brought back to me the reality of why I so desperately need the holiness of God in my life. I wasn't created for evil and you weren't created for evil. I wasn't created for sin and you were not created for sin. Let me read to you. From Getz's book, when I walked in and saw him, I suddenly realized he was no demon or superman. He was an ordinary human being exactly like me. And suddenly, now listen, I became terrified about myself because I was capable of the exact same things. Now, before I can proceed with wrapping this section up on holiness, I need to ask us all a question do you realize you're capable of the same thing? Do you realize that you are capable of such great evil yourself? Because if you don't realize that, then you haven't fully grasped what Paul takes us down that long, arduous trail in Romans 1, 2, and 3, where he finally says, All have sinned and all have fallen short of the glory of God. It's the reason that over the years I have told people over and over again, don't fear the devil, but fear sin. Don't fear any demon in hell, but fear sin. It's the reason the Bible says that we're to flee from the very appearance of the evil. It's the reason the Bible calls upon us to to live, as I illustrated on, on the twenty-third of October, when I, I took the newspaper article and I cut it out of the paper and discarded the rest and set the one sheet of the one article aside to say and it was sanctified. Now it had been cut out from the rest and set apart for a special use. It's when we understand that that we begin to understand not only the pessimistic nature of the Scripture, that all have sinned, but we begin to understand the optimistic nature of the Scripture. And that optimism is that I can be born again. I can be saved. My life can be changed. And all of the old passes away and all things become new again. And it's a concept that to our grandparents and to our great-grandparents was not an abandoned and forgotten concept just a couple of generations ago because we were saturated as a culture, whether we lived like it or not, we were saturated with the culture of why Christ had came to die for our sins. The message of the Sermon on the Mount is so much more, so much more than I'm supposed to love my neighbor. If all the message of the Sermon on the Mountain is, is about I'm to love my neighbor, nobody's going to die for that. But if the message on the mountain is, Sermon on the Mountain is this, that, that to hate my brother, that's murder in seed form. That's murder. It is very, if I hate someone, then the very seed of murder is in my heart. If I lust after someone who's not my wife, then the seed of adultery is in my heart. It's what Paul is driving at. Sin is a malignant tumor as one theologian described it. Sin is that tumor that grows within us that unless we repent of and put our faith and trust in Jesus Christ, then like cancer, it grows in our lives until it takes over every thought, every deed, and every action. And that's what theologians mean by the total depravity of a man. It's why Paul will write in Romans chapter 7 before he starts writing in Romans chapter 8 as he closes that out. He says, who will Deliver me from this body of death. And then Romans 8 starts with, but thanks be to God. That's the optimism of the scripture. Pessimistic? Yes. Man without Christ has no hope. But because of Christ, there is hope for all of us. Can we give him a hand of praise for that tonight? There is hope for all of us. So when I understand who I am, Then I'll understand my need of holiness. So, because of that, and we've spent four weeks with this now, Peter says we need to prepare our minds. We need to prepare our minds. He says, therefore, prepare your minds for action and be sober minded. Now, in your outline, if you have the paper outline or if you're writing it down, you want to just underline that phrase be sober minded. And what he's saying there is much more than just don't be drunk. That's not what he's saying, or don't be high. What he's saying right here is that our minds have got to be completely free. They've got to be set free from the influences of this world. That you can live in this world without the world living in you. You can work in this world. You can be employed in this world you can build a home in this world it's what Jeremiah said to the children of Israel in Jeremiah 29 when he said when they were in Babylon he says build houses there plant gardens there plant vineyards there you know pray for the peace of the city we we pray for the peace of the world we work for the good of the world that we live in but Jeremiah says to them but this is not your home don't let Babylon get into you and part of the message of Ezekiel is not just what's happening in Jerusalem, but part of the message of Ezekiel, and especially when you look at Ezekiel chapter 14 and 15, I believe, is, is part of the message is, is that the spirit of Babylon is getting into those that are living in Babylon, the exiles in Babylon. And so it's gotten into the leadership because how can it be God is with them that they live in this, this powerful kingdom called Babylon? The temple is gone everything is lost. Maybe it would be better to compromise. And there are times when people have said to me, even kneeling here in the altars of this church over the years, well, well, pastor, can I really take that kind of stand? Do you know what that will cost? And that's when we're tempted to compromise. And we have to remember we're called to live according to another principle, and that's the principle of holiness. You see, a holy person, now listen, a holy person, not a holier-than-thou person, the person I was trying to put people at ease when I was traveling, speaking on this subject, but a holy person is one that's sober-minded. He is not drunk or high on the teachings of this world. The world needs more than love. The world needs Jesus. Jesus. And when you understand why we need Jesus, then you understand why the message is so pessimistic, but so optimistic at the same time. And so as a Christian, Peter is writing all about that we have an entirely different way of thinking, and that's important, an entirely different way of thinking that's derived from a biblical worldview Now that's that's huge because when you and I have a different way of thinking, we think differently about life. We think differently about virtues. We think differently about the things we treasure. We think differently about our money. We think differently about our time. We think differently about the purpose of life. We think differently about our entertainment, our recreation. We think differently about people and the value of people, everything about us has changed because we see the Bible, as it were, through a, a new set of lenses. We, it's like the old lenses have been taken away, and we put on a new set of biblical lenses that we look out at the world, and we begin to see it through the holiness of God and what God has intended, which leads us then, if from a biblical worldview, that I understand who I've become. So therefore, therefore, understanding who I've become, I don't talk about how good I am. I don't talk about how righteous I am. I don't talk about the good that I've done. Today, there was a phone call going back a number of years ago. Before I ever moved here. And a part of the conversation was said, we're so thankful you never failed us. And you know i i accepted the compliment without trying to feign humility but the fact of the matter is we don't claim any credit for those successes ourselves we do not claim to be holy because of what we've done we claim what the scripture says we are the righteousness of god in christ It's the reason that word imputed that I have talked about so many times on a Wednesday night is such a beautiful word God has given to me. He has imputed. He has bestowed upon my life. He has declared because of our faith in Jesus Christ and we trust his sacrifice for our sins, he has declared us to be righteous and declared us to be holy. And that's the understanding of who we are. Not that any good thing, as Paul would write in the old King James Version as it translates it, not that any good thing dwells in my flesh, and he's not talking about the the skin and the bone, the sarks. he's talking about my being, my soul. There's nothing good that dwells in me. It's the righteousness of God that we become in Christ. And it's what makes us then to have a sober mind. It's what helps us to win the battle of the heart it's what helps us then to have a will that is totally set upon doing the will of God. Now, how does that happen? There's a little phrase in verse 17 I want you to take note of. Peter calls it the time of your exile. Uh, let's look at it in the New Living Translation. He said, you must live in reverent fear of Him during your time here as temporary residence. I believe one version uses the word strangers. Strangers. Now, here's the reason I want to really bring that out to you tonight: is because when you understand who you've become, then you understand, if I can say it like this, your station in life. Do you understand what I mean when I say your station in life? Paul, Peter's using the word exile, and that's by divine providence. That's by divine choice. Remember, the scripture is the inspired, it's the breathed out, it's the infallible without error. Authoritative word of God. So, this word exile here, it's an important word because number one, it means I'm not an immigrant. I haven't come into this life now as a follower of Jesus Christ as an immigrant because when an immigrant comes to the United States or if uh, someone immigrates to Switzerland or immigrates to Argentina, then they want to assimilate the values of that new culture that they live in. They, they're severing their ties to their old nation. It's not that they hate their old country. It's just that now they, if they come to America, they want to be an American. If they were a Mexican, they want to be an American. If they were a South American, they want to be a, an American. If, if, I, if I move to Switzerland and I say I want to I give up my citizenship in the United States, I say I want to become Swiss. I don't know why I would want to do that, but if that's just the first example that comes to mind tonight. I can think of a lot of reasons why I go to Argentina, some of the best steak I've ever had in my entire life. Beautiful, beautiful country and warm and wonderful people. But an immigrant... Buys into the culture, buys into the the, the pledge, buys into everything about it. And if you're a naturalized citizen here, and we have a number of naturalized citizens in this congregation, then you have pledged allegiance to this country. You've said, I believe in the values of the United States of America. You've not only pledged loyalty to the Constitution, you have assimilated and bought into the values of this country. But it also means I'm not a tourist because a tourist travels someplace and typically you get on a bus or you get on a van with a group of people who speak the same language you speak and you go to restaurants together and you really go to museums together, you don't assimilate or move with other people because you don't understand the language, you don't understand the culture, maybe you have a guide. And so you're there just to participate and to visit and to partake of the pleasures of that country. Let's go back to Switzerland. Someone called me this week and says, I'm going to Switzerland. Can you recommend any places you ever been? I said, oh yeah, I said, let me, I'll send you a list of some restaurants and places that we've been in Switzerland. And and if you want to go for fondue, here's a place that you go. All these places will speak English to you and they're, they're great. And so I'm able to tell them, I've been to Switzerland. I don't want to live in Switzerland. Number one, I'm not rich enough to live in Switzerland. But number two, It's colder there than it is here. And any place that's colder than it it is here is not the will of God for my life. I pray and plead the blood of Jesus, so. But you see, if you're holy, now listen, if you're holy, you're neither an immigrant nor are you a tourist, but you're in exile. Which means rather than assimilation or visitation, There is a separation between you and the culture that you're in. You're separate from the world's values. It's what Leonard Ravenhill was driving at when he said, and I can't tell you how many times I've used this illustration here because it's the best illustration I've ever found. When Leonard Ravenhill says, I can... Catch a fish out of the salt water that's born in salt water, breathed salt water, drank salt water, and when I fillet that fish and cook it, I've got to salt it because even though he lived in the salt, breathed in the salt, the salt never got into him. And that's what it means to be in it. When I'm in exile, that's a really forlorn sounding word, isn't it? I'm in exile. What are you doing here? I'm in exile. You feel sorry for people that are exiles. Don't feel sorry for us. Don't feel sorry for us. Peter is not writing this because he wants us to be forlorn or depressed or sad. Don't feel sorry for us. We are here in this world, but we have chosen not to assimilate its values. We live by the values of our home country we live by the values of our nation we live by the values of the kingdom we live by the laws from the land that we came from that's what it means to be an exile when you visit as i have done with exile communities they have the same traditions they observe the same laws it's what jesus It's what the jews had been sent to babylon you're going to be exiles there but keep the law observe the big ten Honor the Sabbath day, worship the Lord and him only, not the gods of the Babylonians. They were exiles, loyal to the country from which they came from. And we're going to see later in this book, and this gets so exciting, and you, you may be thinking, Pastor, you're really being a dweeb right here, or you're really just trying. I'm telling you, this is what makes this book so exciting to me, because we are citizens of a heavenly country. We are exiles here. It's rising. I'm looking so forward to the coming of Jesus. This is a little lengthy, but I want to read to you. This is from the either the late first century, the early second part of the second century, after Christ's resurrection, after Christ's ascension into heaven, and it's a it's a letter to Diogenetus, and. I, Some of this I read several years ago in a Sunday morning message, but I want to read you. This is chapter five of the letter of Diogenetus, and it's it's short when you think of a chapter, but I want you to hear this because this is how the early church thought of themselves as exiles. For the Christians are distinguished from other men neither by country nor language nor the customs which they observe. For they neither inhabit cities of their own nor employ a particular form of speech nor lead a life which is marked out by any singularity. The course of conduct which they follow has not been devised by any speculation or deliberation of inquisitive men, nor do they, like some, proclaim themselves advocates of any merely human doctrines. But inhabiting Greek as well as barbarian cities, according as the lot of each of them is determined, and following the customs of the natives in respect to clothing, food, and the rest of their ordinary conduct or their ordinary lives they display to us their wonderful and confessedly striking method of life. They dwell in their own countries, but simply as sojourners or exiles. As citizens, they share in all things with others, and yet endure all things as if foreigners. You and I, as citizens, we share April 15th in all things as other citizens do. You know, we share. If, if your children serve in the military, you share. So as citizens, they share in all things with others, yet they endure all things as if foreigners. Every foreign land is to them as their native country, and every land of their birth as a land of strangers. They marry, as do all others. They beget children. But they do not destroy their offspring. They have a common table, but not a common bed. In other words, they don't sleep around. They are in the flesh, but they do not live after the flesh. They pass their days on earth, but they are citizens of heaven. They obey the prescribed laws and at the same time surpass the laws by their lives. They love all men and are persecuted by all. They are unknown and condemned. They are put to death and restored to life. They are poor, yet make many rich. They are in lack of all things and yet abound in all. They are dishonored and yet in their very dishonor are glorified. They are evil spoken of and yet are justified. They are reviled and blessed. They are insulted and repay insult with honor. They do good yet are punished as evildoers. And when punished, they rejoice as if quickened into life. They are assailed by the Jews as foreigners and are persecuted by the Greeks. Yet those who hate them are unable to assign any reason for their hatred. Isn't that a powerful testimony? written by a pagan about the Christians. May that be said of us. You see, what the writer of this letter does is he points out holiness, what holiness looks like in these people. I mean, he deals with the issue of sex, number one. I mean, God gave us sex for... The exclusive enjoyment of a husband and wife, of a man and woman, in a committed marriage relationship. And every time a couple has sexual relationships, that sexual relationship is meant to, once again, reunite them and to stimulate the passion of their love and their commitment to one another. But it's an exclusive relationship, and according to the Christian's understanding and to the Bible's understanding, you don't have sex outside of marriage. And you don't have a concubine or you don't have a mistress or you don't, don't marry someone that is imported or wealthy and then have enough, be a mistress to somebody else that you really care about. For the Christian sex is something sacred and holy, as it was in the beginning. There is a common table. These folks share their food with other people. They, they share their homes. They're, they're generous to a fault. It's why, in some ways, that they are poor is because they are extremely generous. That they lack, according to what you read here, in this in this lengthy letter to Diogenetus describing the Christians, but it's only because they're generous and they, they share not only with their enemy, their friends but with their enemies. They share not only with their families but they share with their enemies as well. These people are forgivers. They're persecuted. They're put to death. They have their homes taken from them sometime, and yet there's something different about them. They abide by the same laws. They do the same things. They still forgive their enemies. And how can you forgive? How can you truly forgive someone that has taken your wife or taken your children, made them slaves, or worse yet, killed them? How can you forgive someone unless truly God is at work in your heart? Movies recount for us all the time how people seek vengeance and how good they feel in taking vengeance. There are TV shows built all around that. Our culture right now is evolving to such a place that, that the Joker is no longer who the Joker was when I was a boy reading Batman comics. The Joker has become a hero that somehow or another, a violent hero that just a few years ago was said, that was said, you know, when when Alfred said to to Batman or to Bruce Wayne, he says, there's just some people that like to burn the world down. There's no reason for it. They're just evil. But now we, we will not understand and celebrate it with this latest movie. You see, Christians, they're not out for vengeance. They're just simply out to represent the gospel of Jesus Christ in this world. And then finally, he says something that was a huge shock. Because women were property of men in that culture. Children were property. But these people are pro-life. And according to Roman law, and according to Greek law, which was Roman law at the time, the Greeks really conquered Rome with their philosophy. The woman could decide whether or not the child lived. And most female babies were killed because they were an economic drain on the family. And so when you look at this you see that things really haven't changed that much, have they, over the years? And that's why these letters are so valuable to the church. Well, finally tonight, what's the key to changing my will? Peter makes one big final push in this letter, or in this section of his letter that I want to put to you tonight, and that the only thing that will change my will to be submitted to God's will is to contemplate the cross. Not just look at the cross and not just wear the cross. as some sort of magical token that's going to protect me. I can wear a cross or any other religious symbol and it's not going to protect me. That's not why we wear a cross. That's not why we have a cross up in our church. We have a cross up in our church because we will contemplate the cross this Sunday morning as we Receive the Lord's Supper together as we worship the Lord around the communion table. And the key to a changed life, the key to a holy life, it's not discipline. The key to a holy life is not self discipline. And right now, and I have several of them, there are so many books that have been printed upon disciplining ourselves to be holy. The key is not the discipline. If the key was the discipline, we would all keep our New Year's resolutions every year. Some people have told me, said, Pastor, I don't even make New Year's resolutions because I know I'm not going to keep them. The key is not somehow or another thinking that we, are, we can be disciplined enough. The key is not thinking that somehow or another we can, we can build our lives in such a way that we can be holy. When I look at Tom, if, if I want to be a tennis player, and I look at Tom Marks, I might look at Tom and say, I want to play tennis like Tom. I want to be able to run when I'm however old you are, Tom, to, to be able to play tennis back and forth on a tennis court. You know, I might look at someone like Dick and say, I want to be like Dick Krug. I want to be able to tell you everything about that tree and that bird and that duck and that bear and what I can eat and what I can't eat out of the woods. And even when Dick says I can, I'm not sure I'm going to. But there's a lot of me that I would love to be like Dick or maybe you'd like to be like Heinz. But that's not the key to Discipline trying harder to be more of a naturalist or trying harder to be more of an athlete or trying harder to be better at whatever. The key is contemplating the cross. Set your hope fully on the grace, the grace, the salvation that will be brought to you at the revelation or the return of Christ. Set your heart upon that or your hope upon that. Jonathan Edwards wrote a book called The Freedom of the Will. It's a difficult read. Anybody ever read it? It's, a difficult, it's well worth the time, but it's a difficult read. And in that book, Jonathan Edwards, and this is one of the reasons people don't like him in modern-day America, but he's the greatest theologian in my mind that the United States has ever produced. Jonathan Edwards, in this book, Freedom of the Will, says, ultimately, you're always gonna to choose to do what you wanna do. And the argument comes up, well, if somebody, and the word wallet would have been purse in those days, if somebody wanted to take my purse, with well, the knife or a gun or a weapon, then that's not what I wanted to do. And Edwards would say, yes, you gave up your purse because you chose to value your life more than your purse. If you were to take that complicated, but rock solid biblical argument that Edwards makes, when I choose not to forgive, it's because I would rather hold a grudge. When I choose not to be generous, It's because I choose to try to self-preserve myself. When I choose not to be faithful to my wife, then I choose my pleasure over my fidelity to her. Or when I choose to destroy my children, I've chose for whatever reason that I say is more important than the life of my own flesh and blood. It's why looking at the cross is so vital to understanding holiness. It's the only thing that can change my motivation. Peter writes in verse 18, for, and that's an important word, for. He wants you to think, that's the reason he says that word for, for. I want you to think. So as we read this verse, I want you to think with your mind that the words he's going to use, now listen, don't miss this. Don't put your notes away because you filled in the last blank or you're missing the point of the whole message. He wants you to think, that's why he uses the word for the rest of these two verses are so emotional. The rest of these two verses are so full of pathos, for you know that God paid a ransom. God, God doesn't have to do anything He doesn't want. God paid a ransom to save you from the empty life you inherited from your ancestors. And it was not paid with mere gold or silver. You know, wise investors, they're investing in silver, according to the advertisements on television, because silver is going up. Wise investors are investing in gold because they know there's an economic collapse coming and so they secure their futures because they're investing in gold. But Diogenetus, these Christians, they're not like that. It was not paid with mere gold or silver which lose their value. It was the precious, blood of Christ. Read that with me. It was the precious blood of Christ. Let that sink into your soul. Close your eyes and say it again. It was the precious blood of Christ, the sinless, spotless Lamb of God. It is Only when I understand what my sin cost God, a ransom, will I truly long for holiness. When I understand not what Bob's sin, Debbie's sin, Mildred's sin, but what my sin cost God. This hasn't been a preacher talking to you, this has been a preacher's conversation before the Lord. What my sin calls God, well, I truly long for holiness. And it will change how I sing that song, holiness. Holiness, it's what I long for. Holiness, holiness, it's what I need. Holiness, holiness, is what you want from me. And it's because of holiness that Jesus says that I sanctify myself. I give myself as a holy sacrifice. I lay aside all other concerns. I lay down everything. I leave it behind according to Philippians chapter 2. I lay it aside and I lay down my life as a holy sacrifice so that they, that Dennis, that you could be made holy by the truth of God. I don't know about you. I love Tom. I love Dick. I love Hines. I love all of you. But I want to be like Jesus tonight. Holiness is what I need. Would you stand with me? and? Let me pray with you before we go home. Hallelujah. Father, I thank you for the gift of holiness and imputed righteousness, Lord. I thank you for a changed heart, for a changed mind, and for a yielded will. And tonight, Lord, I ask you, Lord, would you help us by your Spirit just to sit down somewhere before we go to bed tonight and contemplate the cross. Lord, tonight, not the cross for Becky or for Andrew, Christopher, Benjamin, or Amy, or the church, but the cross for myself, that I was redeemed, I was ransomed, not with mere gold or silver, which lose their value, but with the precious blood of Jesus Christ and when that becomes first and foremost in my life then Lord the discipline will follow for the spirit of God has not given us the spirit of fear but of power and love and self control which in Jesus precious name I pray tonight And everyone said, amen, amen. God bless you.